a sense, one could say that it's the rich who move and the poor who are displaced. So the voluntariness, the agency here is very much on the side of those who choose to move, whereas in forcible displacement, these are sections of the Indian population who are the objects of state politics. These are not people who chose to build their lives elsewhere. Now, of course, it's a question which is a paradox for Indian democracy. And the paradox here is that despite the large political participation by the poor in Indian democracies and enormous faith in their power to change governments, and they have done that regularly, and despite that, the paradox is they are the ones who in material terms have benefited the least. And therefore, the ones who are forcibly displaced have had to make their voices heard against very many obstacles. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode, I talk to Professor Shalini Randiria, Rector and President of Central European University in Vienna, and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschmann Center of Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Earlier, she has been a member of the Selection Committee of the Pro Futura Sciencia Program here at SCAS. And this is the third episode in our theme Asia, Citizen and State Relations. Shalina Randeria is an American-born Indian social anthropologist, sociologist, who was educated at the universities of Delhi, Heidelberg and Oxford, and received her PhD and her habilitation from the Free University of Berlin. Shalini Randeria has published widely on the anthropology of globalization, law, the state and social movements. And in this episode, we will talk about one of her research interests, forced displacement and migration. We will also talk a little about the Central European University and its move from Budapest to Vienna. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to add anything to the introduction that our listeners should know more about? No, thank you very much for having me, Natalie, and thank you for the generous introduction. So one of your research interests is displacement and migration in India. And why do you look at India through the lens of displacement? And what can you see through this lens? So my research in India has not been on migration. It's been on displacement and on forced displacement. And that's why I think it's a good lens through which to address the citizenship-state relationship, which you would like to address in these podcasts. And why is that so? There are millions and millions of Indian citizens who have been forcibly displaced. The legal category for them would be so-called IDPs, internally displaced persons. So they have been displaced within India. Both those displaced from villages because of infrastructure projects, dams which were being built, military bases, because of other kinds of economic activities more recently, so-called special economic zones which have been set up in India, which have all led to land being acquired by the state, often for state projects like dams, big dams mega dams or uh, military bases or atomic or other power plants 
more recently for the state acquiring land for private sector companies. So for both multinational corporations as well as Indian firms. And this leads to a dispossession of uh, those who are living on that land. So in the case of rural India, these are farmers, uh, these are sometimes semi-nomadic communities of those who are cattle breeders, herders, etc. They may also be displaced through the drawing of the boundaries of so-called protected areas or national parks. So this is the traditional habitat of hundreds and thousands of forest-dwelling communities in India. But once the boundary of the national park or the protected area is drawn, so these are biodiversity hotspots, some of them are drawn in particular ways, then these have to be vacated of any human habitation in order to protect the flora and fauna, particularly the protected species, be these tigers or lions or other animals in these areas. So they have also resulted in enormous amount of forced displacement. In urban India, a lot of the forced displacement has resulted from infrastructure projects. So either the widening of rail or road networks, building of airports, also sometimes special economic zones, but equally from what are called slum clearance programs. So 50% of the populations of the mega cities in India, like Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta, are living in so-called slums. So these are informal settlements. And these are people who have been multiply displaced often, often first displaced from their villages, forced to migrate to the city in search of livelihoods, and then once again displaced in the city because of infrastructure development. And so, first of all, it's the sheer scale of displacement of millions of citizens, which is something which is important to bear in mind. So, we're not talking about small marginal problem. The second reason why I think the lens of displacement and of forced displacement is important here is that most of those in India who have since Indian independence in 1947 who have been displaced have been displaced using laws of British colonial provenance. So there is a continuity here between the post-colonial state and the colonial state in the legal regimes that it is using in order to effect this kind of dispossession and displacement. The third notable factor for me would be that most of those displaced have not received adequate compensation, have not received the relief and rehabilitation, which you would think that the Indian state should provide to its own citizens. And these are not migrants coming in from elsewhere who would not enjoy the same rights as citizens. These are all Indian citizens. And these are citizens who have been disadvantaged, marginalized, dispossessed through every successive government. So this is not so much about the particular government in power. It really is something which captures the state citizenship relationship in a very fundamental way. That's why I think it's a good lens to think about this question through looking at the hundreds and thousands of those who have been 
forcibly displaced, those who have lost their livelihoods, those communities whose social fabrics have been torn apart by this kind of displacement, the suffering, the untold suffering of these communities whose lives have been disrupted in very severe ways and whose choices for the kinds of livelihoods that they could lead have been enormously constrained by being deprived of either the forests in which they had made their habitat or the land on which they were living and cultivating as farmers, or in the case of the semi-nomads, but also in the case of farmers and villagers, the kinds of pastures and grazing lands on which they were able to raise uh, cattle with a very little economic input from their sides, investment from their sides, because these lands were uh, common property resources. They were public lands available to villagers in order to graze their cattle or collect firewood or use for collective common purposes. So it's the privatization of land and decades of ever more privatization of land. That's where one of the major problems here lies. And it's privatization, which the state has undertaken for industry. And part of it is also for public infrastructure establishment. Yes, but all of this that you're saying, that government after government has displaced people, and we're talking about a lot of people here who are affected, why does the state not take better care of their citizens in this case? Why is there this system that goes back, as you say, to the British colonial times? What's in it for the state to do this kind of thing? So I think there are very many facets to this. One is, of course, the model of development chosen by the Indian state. In 1947, when the country became independent, there were two models of development which were in discussion in India. One was the Gandhian model, let me put it very simply, and the other was the Nehruvian model, the model which the Indian first Indian Prime Minister, Ajawalal Nehru, advocated. But most middle-class Indians went with the Nehruvian model. What was the contrast? Nehru wanted to see India industrialized into an urban, modern, industrial nation, economically well-developed, high rates of economic growth, very, very quickly built good infrastructure, which is what the country was lacking. So he called, for example, the dams, the temples of modern India. And you can see the amount of importance which he attached to this infrastructure development because these hydroelectric dams were needed for irrigation purposes to modernize Indian agriculture. In the 70s, 1970s followed the Green Revolution with the kinds of hybrid crops which needed enormous amounts of water, but also fertilizers, etc., which depleted the land but raised productivity for a particular period of time. And you also needed electricity. So this was a generation of electricity in these coal-powered dams. And the idea was to catch up with the West as soon as possible and provide also better prosperity for the citizens of India. So this was one development model, and that is the one that India followed. Gandhi cautioned. Gandhi cautioned right from the 1920s. 
Gandhi's idea was a very different idea of India, of what self-sufficiency, of what self-reliance would mean. He wanted an India which would be focused on its villages, not the villages that you de facto found, but an ideal village, one which would be harmonious as a community, one in which different members of different castes, so he was not in favor of eliminating the caste system. This was for him functionally differentiated the system, not necessarily by birth, that they would live in harmony with one another. For Nehru, these villages were the places of superstition, backwardness, etc. So Nehru saw basically urbanization as the remedy. Gandhi saw strengthening of villages, village autonomy. The governance model for him was a decentralized model. Nehru wanted a centralized, strong state. Gandhi was looking for village-based industries, what he called cottage industries, so on a very small-scale industries, and he wanted handicrafts to be in the center, so unalienated labor, a labor which artisans had performed in family units to be at the center of India's development. He therefore had a very different model of what economic uh, prosperity would mean. He was extremely skeptical of the capitalist economic growth, but also of the socialist model. He was very much for encouraging a reduction in our needs, in our wants. Because as he argued, the world has enough, the earth has enough for all our needs. It doesn't have enough for our greed. So there was an ecological argument here as well, well ahead of his times in seeing what the devastating ecological consequences will be of following the Western model of industrialization and globalizing that model as we have done. And he had a really strong word of caution here saying that we are seeing the consequences today of British industrialization, which is at the cost of the loot of natural resources from India. And when we generalize this model to become the only model of economic development, it will be devastating in its ecological consequences. So you had two alternative models, and it was very clear that the Nehruvian model won out. Now, the Nehruvian model of development was one which believed in the modernization uh, model, which was predicated on what was called a trickle-down effect. So you produce wealth and it will trickle down to the poor. Gandhi had a very different idea. He said, you know, if you need to measure as a policymaker, a politician, any kind of policy that you are putting in place, if you have to have a measure for whether you should do it or not, he said, think of the face of the poorest person whom you have ever met and ask yourself, if what you are about to put in place is going to benefit that person. So as it turned out, the costs of the Nehruvian model of industrialization were borne by those whose faces Gandhi wanted us to remember, but the Indian elites and middle classes did not. So what we see is that the forced displacement that I am talking about and have done 30 years of research on in India on dispossession of all kinds and displacement, the poor were the ones who were forcibly displaced. The rich always managed to get some form of compensation for themselves, often 
also not always adequate, but still it was a form of compensation which they could get using political connections, networks, ties, etc. So, you know, in a sense, one could say that it's the rich who move and the poor who are displaced. So the voluntariness, the agency here is very much on the side of those who choose to move, whereas in forcible displacement, these are sections of the Indian population who are the objects of state politics. These are not people who chose to build their lives elsewhere. Now, of course, it's a question which is a paradox for Indian democracy because Indian democracy took root. And Indian democracy not only took root after 47, it took root under very odd circumstances for a democracy in a country with vast numbers of poor people, very, very large population that was illiterate. So all conditions and an extremely hierarchical and unequal society, all conditions which in Western political theory would have actually predicted that democracy was doomed to fail under these circumstances. And this is not true. Indian democracy took root. Indian democracy not only took root, it expanded. It gave franchise and it gave adult franchise to all Indian adults over the age of 18, men, women, without any economic criteria of property ownership or education being brought to bear on the makeup of that polity. And the paradox here is that despite the large political participation by the poor in Indian democracy, so this is also an interesting fact in contradiction to the West, where large parts of the poor populations are depoliticized, although they are enfranchised, they don't exercise their vote. In the Indian case, the rich don't bother to vote, but the poor always go to cast their ballot and have enormous faith in their power to change governments. And they have done that regularly. And despite that, the paradox is they are the ones who in material terms have benefited the least. So the country remains unequal. The gap between the rich and poor has grown, especially under COVID. And the benefits, economic benefits, have been uh, skewed. And uh, therefore, the ones who are forcibly displaced have had to make their voices heard against very many obstacles. One I want to point out to here in particular, and that is elections or elected representatives and political mobilization around uh, elections is one major forum for the exercise of voice. And that is very difficult when you are forcibly displaced because you don't necessarily immediately get political representation as living in informal settlements where you have not been registered for elections. So the kinds of documentation necessary in order to register yourself as a voter is missing. Many Indians who are slum dwellers, they go to their home villages in order to cast votes. But so important is the casting of ballots to them that they would time their visit home often with elections in order to be able to cast a ballot, but they don't necessarily have a vote in the areas where they live. So that one forum for the exercise of voice where you would think they would be able to affect the kinds of benefits they would get from the state has been limited. The one of the fora that they have chosen is the judiciary, legal battles. So demonstrations, of course, public spaces, 
using all kinds of means of uh, political mobilization, especially in urban spaces, with the help of NGOs, with the help of social movements who have also been part of the mobilization against displacement and also part of the mobilization for a just and fair uh, rehabilitation for those forcibly displaced. But these have been legal battles as well. And many NGOs and social movements have gone to courts in India seeking remedy, seeking both remedy and seeking a forum for voice. So often the people that I have worked with, I've done a lot of work in law courts on these cases, the so-called public interest litigation, as it's called in India, social interest litigation, as Professor Bhandra Bhakshi calls it. These are cases in which many of those who are seeking justice say, we're not sure we will get justice. First of all, we'll be able to postpone the displacement by using the court. Secondly, we'll be able to get some public attention to our plight because the press may pick up the story. And thirdly, we want to be heard. We want our voices to be heard. So it's a forum, the court also, for exercising voice as much as it is one for seeking justice. So is there any progress being made in this? You're talking about the cases at court and the involvement of the NGOs. Are they getting anywhere? Yes, we have to look at various cases. These are long and protracted legal battles. And the courts have been actually sympathetic in some cases and extremely unsympathetic in other cases. The courts have on the whole upheld the right of the state to displace the colonial legal principle, which is uh, used to do it, so not only the colonial legislation, but the legal principle, the norm, is that of the so-called eminent domain, that the state is the owner of all land which is not privately owned. So forests belong to the state, all pastures or public lands what is classified since the British era as so-called wastelands in villages. This is all public land. And therefore, under this principle of eminent domain, the state can, because it's owner of these, this land, it also has the right to displace from that land. Now, the question is, can it displace and for what reason can it displace? So here the whole question of displacement in public interest comes in. What is used as the argument is, that it's in public interest to widen a road or to build an airport or to build a dam. The counter-argument is, yes, it is in public interest, but those being displaced also constitute the public. And therefore, they must receive adequate compensation. And maybe if, for example, the arguments against the mega dams have been to say, let's reduce the height of the dam, let's build smaller dams, let's build a different kind of irrigation system, which will be equally effective, but which doesn't displace and doesn't add it to this large extent. So it is a battle on the development model. The courts have not been sympathetic to alternative development models or arguments for thinking in a different framework here. On ecological issues, they have been much more sympathetic. On the question of slum dwellers' rights and displacement, it's a complicated issue because often it's been argued that they don't have a right to that piece of land because they are living in an informal settlement. So it's technically an illegal settlement and therefore 
the state can not only displace them, but it can displace them without compensation. Now, this is a complicated question because a lot of the loans which have been taken from the World Bank, for example, in order to carry out these infrastructure projects, be they for dams or for widening of transport networks, infrastructure networks, roads and rail in the city, the World Bank loans enjoin, they oblige the state, the credit conditionalities have as part of the loan agreement, the obligation to restore the lives and livelihoods of those who are being forcibly displaced and to restore it to the prior level and to provide relief and rehabilitation. So that's because of the protests against the earlier displacements, which were without these conditionalities, the bank has amended its lending conditionalities and now obliges the borrowing government to abide by them. How successfully is a different question because then when the bank loans conditions are violated, citizens use not only courts, but they use the inspection panel, the quasi-judicial mechanism attached to the World Bank in order to complain against the violation of these conditionalities. So what we see is years and years of judicial and political struggles against displacement and with partial success in some cases, none in others, where ecological issues, questions of ecological justice are involved, sometimes greater success, sometimes at least success in staving off the displacement, sometimes greater recognition of rights and some kinds of programs of amelioration, provision of alternative housing sites, etc. But restoration of livelihoods to a prior level is uh, conspicuous by its absence. And what is also not in place, and one would have thought over all these decades of displacement, what one would have thought about is what alternative skills and livelihoods are necessary for those who are losing their lands and are giving it up for whatever kind of public purpose which is being defined by the state. One major thing I should mention here is my recent work has been on mining-affected communities, and it's been with networks, NGO networks, who are championing people's rights in these areas. So there have been some major landmark judgments by the courts, especially the Supreme Court, upholding the rights of mining-affected communities. These are also, in very many cases, forest-dwelling communities in India, because that is where a lot of the mineral wealth of the country is. So we have seen several cases where judicial battles have been won, and courts have recognized the rights of mining communities to even a share in the profits of uh, mining. And that has been a sort of one area in which I've been looking at state-citizen relations. You mentioned COVID. So how has the whole pandemic situation that we are still living through at the moment, how is that and is influencing this displaced people and the whole situation that we're talking about? So the pandemic, let me talk about two parts of the question. One, as you probably saw in newspaper stories or in photographs, the lockdown in India 
was extremely sudden at four hours notice in 2020 at the very beginning of the pandemic. And that lockdown led to hundreds and thousands of working poor who are all migrants to the city, leaving the city on foot because there was no other mode of transportation and walking literally thousands of kilometers back to their villages because they had no means of sustenance in the city anymore. Everything closed, the factories closed, the lockdown meant that they could not go as domestic workers. Many of them were working in houses, many of them were in families. They were working as caretakers, as cooks, as guards. Many of them were working in restaurants or on building sites. Most of the labor in the building sector is migrant labor, internal migrant labor in India. So we saw these migrants walking home because they did not have any economic security in the city. And their choice was between succumbing to the pandemic in the city and of trying to go back to village communities, to families, where they hoped that they would get the economic support needed to see the lockdown through. So it was uh, really a choice between life and livelihood. And later on, we saw that in cities like Calcutta, for example, the slum dwellers organized themselves in these informal settlements in such a way that, yes, they knew they would be forced to leave the settlement despite the pandemic to go out and earn living because they were on daily wages. So if they don't bring in any money, the family has nothing to eat. There were no savings and there is nothing to fall back upon. And the state provided little by way of either distributing free food or providing any kind of cash to these sections of the population. So people organized themselves and we knew that water is a scarce resource. Uh, you would need to bathe and wash your clothes, etc., in order to reduce the risk of uh, spreading the virus. So they, in self-organization, you got them organizing water, making sure that those who were returning into the informal settlement were stopped at the gates and they were provided water to wash themselves, to wash their clothes and then enter. So people tried to organize not only their own supplies, but also hygienic rules and enforce them. Whereas, you know, the middle class went into a gated community mode in trying to ensure that the poor did not enter their gated communities anymore. So they needed certain services, they should come and supply certain things, but they should leave it outside the gates of the entire gated community so as not to endanger the lives of the middle class. So you got a lot of vigilantism, you got a lot of policing of these gated communities, both from the poor coming in, but who were providing a lot of the daily services, but also policing each other in the lockdowns of last year. The other aspect of state-society relations under the pandemic that I've been looking at are the changes which happened in the use of a lot of accumulated funds, social purpose funds, which had been accumulated unused. So here the interesting development was that, let's talk about the building industry, for example, there was assessed a tax being levied by the state on the builders who had to pay a certain percentage, just as in the case of the mining industry, a certain percentage had to be paid into the coffers of the state as a tax. And these were monies which had been kept aside 
Uh, so this was not income tax. We're not talking about value-added or income tax. These were additional levies by the state for social special purposes. So these were meant to pay the pensions, for example, of the migrant workers in the building industry. And these funds had been accumulating unused because it'll be too complicated to go into it. But one of the reasons was the bureaucratic hurdles. The other was the problem of how to identify the migrants, what kind of documentation would be needed. So the kind of money had been being collected over the years, and it really runs into millions of dollars that had been accumulating in these accounts had not been paid out ever. So one of the things which we saw here is not necessarily at the level of policies, but in state practices, administrative practices, that these funds under the pressure of COVID, but under, of course, pressure from NGOs and the press, which were now using also our uh, research and the networks whom we were connected with for using the kinds of data which we had collected on these unspent funds to make the case that if you don't use them now to mitigate the plight of those people, when will the state use them? And therefore, for example, in the building industry, some of these accumulated funds did get used. In the mining sector, the accumulated funds got used not just for the mining-affected communities whom they were actually supposed to benefit, but they got used, for example, to build COVID-related medical facilities for all community members. So I think we saw an interesting aspect of the state citizenship state-society relationship under COVID in this use of state funds for different sections of citizens. At this point, a note for our listeners. In episode 26, you can hear more about infrastructures, habitats and slum lives in India. In that episode, I talked to Ash Amin, professor in geography and fellow of Christ College at the University of Cambridge, about mental health and well-being among the poorest population in India. Now, back to our guest in this episode, Shalini Randeria, who apart from being a distinguished researcher in her field, also is the rector and president of the Central European University in Vienna. Since August 2021, you are the rector and president of the Central European University in Vienna. And the university was recently forcibly moved from Budapest to Vienna. I guess a lot of listeners have heard about this, but just very briefly, what happened there? Why did you have to move? So we have to be very careful in how we phrase this. The university was not forcibly displaced. The university was put in a position of such legal insecurity in Budapest through the passing of what is now known as Lex CEU, the new law by the Hungarian government, which made it almost impossible for the university to function in any legally secure, predictable manner. So the law put conditions which the university met. The law was designed to actually restrict the functioning of just one University that was the Central European University, which was a doubly accredited university or still is a doubly accredited university in Hungary, an American accredited university, and also a Hungarian accredited university, set up exactly 30 years ago after the fall of communism in order to provide 
it's a private university, but it's a private university in which 80% of its students get scholarships and financial aid. So it's not an elite university. Its aim was to provide quality education and access to quality education to students whose parents may not necessarily be able to afford this education initially in Eastern and Central Europe, but in the last uh, 10 years to students who are coming in from all over the world. Many of them, two-thirds of them today, are coming from countries of the global south. So the university's functioning was made impossible by the kinds of conditions which the law imposed, although the university met those conditions within the time period stipulated. The government, the Hungarian government, failed to recognize the fact that the university had met with those conditions. And therefore, there was always this Democrat sword hanging over the university as to how long it could keep its doors open. And the condition, one of the conditions was, of course, the students who had already enrolled could graduate. But the problem was, could the university, under these conditions of legal insecurity, admit new students? And could it plan? And what if its license were suddenly withdrawn? And therefore, under these conditions, the university decided to move its American accredited teaching programs to Vienna. That's why I said we have to be careful about exactly how we phrase this. So yes, of course, we were, if you like, in a sense, forced under these conditions of insecurity to make this move. And we are very grateful to Austria and to the city of Vienna, which has been an extremely warm and hospitable environment for us to find a new home here. Thank you for the clarification. It's very good to keep these things in mind. Maybe I should also add, we then, the university then, filed a case against the LEC-EU, saying that it not only violated Hungarian law, but it also violated EU principles and was a violation of the WTO, the World Trade Organization's GATS, the General Agreement on Services. It took, unfortunately, four years for us to win our case. We won it in the uh, European Court, which upheld our claim, saying that the Hungarian law was in violation both of the EU principles as well as of the uh, WTO's GATS. Uh, by which time, however, we had had to take the decision and we had moved already to Vienna. The response of the Hungarian government was to revise the Lex EU, but not to revise it to make it conform with the principles it was violating, but to, in fact, make it even more difficult for the university to comply with these conditions. So there we are at the moment. So at the moment, you don't have any plans to move back to Hungary? No, we are not a university in exile. We are building a new campus here. We are in a temporary campus at the moment. So in a way, for me, you know, 30 years of work on how communities are torn apart, how livelihoods can be destroyed, what kinds of effects this kind of forcible displacement can have is something which you can really see in the university community. Our administration is still, a large part of it is in Budapest. Many of our faculty members are there for personal reasons and commuting. Many have moved. We have to build a new administration here, and that is what we are doing. So we are not a university in exile. We will not move back to Budapest. We've left behind very, very beautiful buildings there. But what we are doing is what we are allowed to do legally in Budapest, which is carry out research there. So it's not like we have vacated 
our place entirely. We are also not only carrying out research, we are also carrying out what a university's other function is, which is reaching out to the public. Our library, for example, was always open to other universities and others in Budapest. That continues to be the case. We have a democracy institute there, which is a research institute. It continues to hold public discussions on democracy. Our Institute of Advanced Studies is there. And of course, the Open Society Archives, which is part of the university, is also in Budapest. It's our American accredited programs, which are the major part of our graduate teaching programs, which are all now Austrian accredited as well. And they are all in Vienna. So they have a double accreditation. They are American and Austrian accredited programs now. We see a rise of populism all over the world, unfortunately, also in Europe. And Hungary is maybe an extreme example in Europe, but you see developments in other countries. What do you think? Is there a risk that we can see similar developments as in Hungary and other European countries and that other universities might have to move or you have to move again or something like that? I don't think we are in any risk of having to move again. But you know that we have moved once before. The Central European University was first set up 30 years ago in Prague, and we were forced to move out because of political reasons at that time from Prague and moved to Budapest. So this is our second history of dislocation, if you will. And I don't think that risk is there. What we do see, however, as you very rightly point out, is the rising tide of populist governments all over Europe, but unfortunately all over the world. So Europe is not an exception in that regard. I think uh, what you see is a particular toolkit and a particular playbook of how to institute these kinds of authoritarian practices of governance and rule. I call them soft authoritarian regimes. I've I head a research group at the University of Bremen, which is looking comparatively across Europe at these kinds of regimes and the kinds of political practices, administrative practices, legal practices of these regimes. So these are regimes which use the law in order to subvert the rule of laws. They are about rule by law, but not rule of law. They're all majoritarian elected governments. Poland would be a good example as well. So Hungary is not an exception. The EU has woken up very, very late to this. It did not take action when it should and could have in the Hungarian case. So it's now realizing the red lines that have been crossed and has decided to act in the case of Poland. But we see these kinds of authoritarian regimes and practices, even if it's not a full-blown regime, in many other European countries. Britain being no exception. The Boris Johnson government has also disregard for not only international law, but also for their own courts. The British government has tried to restrict the rights of demonstrators, has given much more power to the police in that regard. So we can see the shift and it's a slow, gradual, corroding shift often not noticed because, you know, this is not the 1970s, Latin America or Africa, tanks on the street, military coups which have overthrown governments. These are governments elected by large majorities and who are using those large majorities 
in parliament in order to successively corrode and dismantle democracy from within. So they change the composition of the constitutional courts, then, then they rewrite their constitutions, they then try and capture the media, they restrict and shrink the space for civil societies. So then there are laws which are put in place which restrict funding and the rates of action for NGOs. And uh, they also finally move against important, very critical, important institution like the university. And we are likely to see debates around freedom of academic freedom and the freedom to teach, I think, in many countries. You are seeing debates on gender and gender studies in Hungary. This has been uh, outlawed. Huge debates in Poland on this. You're likely to get debates in other countries on not only gender studies, but also look at France, the recent debates on seeing critical race studies, post-colonial studies as uh, American imports, which should not have a place in French universities. So we can see the same kind of tendencies in Western Europe as well. And these are alarming tendencies everywhere. And another note for our listeners. Shalini Randeria actually hosts her own podcast called Democracy in Question. In each episode, she invites a leading scholar or public figure to explore the challenges and dilemmas facing democracies around the world. And just to wrap up, some questions about SCAS. You are associated with the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study by having been a member of the selection committee for the Pro Futura program. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement here at SCAS? So I've had many years of close collaboration with SCAS on several kinds of programs. I've worked very, very closely with your former director, Bjorn Wittrock, who is a close friend. And I've edited uh, books with him. I have been organizing over, I think, the last decade and a half, conferences, international conferences and uh, workshops with him. I visited uh, SCAS for these uh, workshops which have taken place in SCAS or other events. But I think what I do want to single out here is the Profutura program, because I think it is among the best fellowship programs that I have ever seen. I was very, very happy to be a member of the jury of this program. I am surprised why that program has not been replicated elsewhere in other European countries. I think it has features which are unique, but are replicable. So for our listeners, just some more background about the program. The Pro Futura Ciencia program is a research program for promising early career scholars in the humanities and social sciences, and it was set up by SCAS and Riksbanken's Jubiläumsfond in 1999. The idea behind is to provide optimal conditions for young scholars and to give them the chance to pursue curiosity-driven research during a five-year period. During this five years, the scholars spent one year at SCAS and one year abroad, to widen their international networks also. The candidates are nominated by Swedish universities and the nominating universities are encouraged to propose candidates not only from their own, but also other universities. The selection of scholars to the program 
and the management of it rests on the Collegium. In the course of the program, scholars are offered a tenured position at the nominating university. And it's a win-win-win situation, I think. It's a win for the university because it's getting their best scholars internationally recognized, giving them the visibility and the additional research qualifications with which to come back to the university. It's fantastic for the SCAS as an institution because it brings in very, very talented young scholars who can interact across disciplines and across generations and benefit from that. And of course, it's the feather in the cap of all these young scholars and provides them a unique opportunity to be able to develop their research agendas with their own money at a very early stage of their careers and build all the international networks that they will then, and their students will benefit and their institutions will benefit from in the years to come. So I think it's among the most successful programs that I have seen, and I really wish it all the best. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me and to our listeners, of course. It was really a pleasure to have you here in our studio, even if you are in Vienna right now. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Shalini Randiria, Rector and President of the Central European University in Vienna and Senior Fellow at the Albert Hirschman Center of Democracy at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. She has given us some insight into her research on forced displacement in India and we also learned more about the current situation of the Central European University. This was the third and final episode in our theme, Asia, Citizen and State Relations. In the previous episodes within this theme, we have heard the thoughts of Michael Pewitt, Professor of Chinese History and Anthropology at Harvard University, on how to rethink the world considering Chinese history. This was episode number 24. In episode 28, Barak Kushner, Professor of East Asian History at the University of Cambridge, talked about his research on Japanese war crimes. He also gave us a taste of his research on the history of the popular noodle dish ramen. The multi- and interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS features the research of fellows from many different disciplines. This is also reflected in this podcast. Our topics so far have been the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life science, infrastructures and Asia, citizen and state relations. We will soon start a new round of recordings within the themes gender, Latin America, development issues and human rights, and genetics and evolution. I am looking forward to talking to the different scholars and learning more about their research. We hope that you want to join us and listen then as well. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Shalini Randeria once again for joining SCAS Talks. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. Bye for now.